At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greg Peterson here, and I want to thank you for listening to the Urban Farm Podcast. We wouldn't be able to keep doing these great shows without you. So as a token of my appreciation, I'd like to offer you access to a list of our top 10 episodes I personally find most inspiring. If you enjoy the Urban Farm Podcast but don't have time to listen to everyone, then you will love this list. Although all our guests have great information to offer, if you are short on time, these 10 are must-listens. To get access to the top 10 most inspiring podcast episodes, text FARMER to 44222. That's FARMER to 44222. And enjoy listening. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the grow-your-own-food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Sherry Pelsma back on the show to talk about her experience this time with macro photography in the garden. Sherry grew up on the rural Oregon coast before moving to Portland to finish her degree. She has spent the last 10 years in community education and runs a program where participants learn do-it-yourself skills to make homes safer and more energy efficient. As an environmentalist who loves macro photography, she took a special interest in pollinators and other insects which quickly blossomed into the love that drove the founding of the project Pollinator Parkways. Welcome to the show today, Sherry. Thanks for having me back. Oh, absolutely. So I just shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? Sure. Well, I actually was never really much into photography growing up until I was able to get my hands on a digital camera. Oh, yeah. When before, you know, it was like film, it was so expensive to develop pictures, I was very cautious, you know, I didn't want to take more than one picture of the same thing and all that. But digital photography allowed me to take more chances and take more interesting photos. And I discovered one day the macro setting, which usually looks like a little flower Mm. on a point and shoot. And I decided to start taking pictures of really small things close up. And when I zoomed in on those pictures, I was super surprised to see that I could see things like pollen grains and hairs on bugs and all that. And I was just hooked. Wow. So that's what they call macro photography then. Yeah. Macro photography is really, I like to think of it as taking pictures of the really tiny things in the world. And it can allow you to look at something more closely than you could with just your eye. Yeah. So this is this is a different kind of photography, though, because you, I can't just do it with my iPhone. 
right? Well, actually, new phones are able to take pretty impressive pictures, and some of them do have macro settings. But it's, it all depends on what you're going for. Uh-huh. Once you start taking photos for a while, you start to get pickier and pickier <laughs> about what you want from the photo and how close you want to get. Yeah. And an iPhone would have a really hard time with that. Yeah, because I've tried to take pictures up close and personal with my iPhone, and it just doesn't do it. So mm-hmm. what do I need? How, you know, how, what kind of equipment do we need in order to make this happen? Well, it all depends on what you want and how serious you are. I have uh, what's called an SLR, and that's the kind of the larger camera with a lens that can be replaced with different kinds of lenses, and you can adjust all the settings manually. And I have a specialty lens. It's a macro lens, and it's actually really made for taking very sharp close-up pictures of tiny subjects. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people, you know, start off with point-and-shoot cameras nowadays, which is just, you know, a camera that you get. It has a zoom feature on it. Mm-hmm. can take really great photos as well. And I was really happy with that for a long time until I started wanting something more specific from my yeah. photography. Yeah. Cool. So all of a sudden I'm interested in macro photography, and <laughs> now I have, you know, I have a, a camera that can – you know, pretty much do a good job of taking these macro photography pictures. What next? Well, what I really love about macro photography is that you don't have to go a lot of places to find mm. really interesting subject matter. Oh, yeah. I will just sometimes just sit really quietly in my garden you know, on a beautiful sunny day. And as you sit and you watch your plants, I have, I have a rain garden that I like to sit in. After a while, all the little tiny things that are scared of you and your movement start coming back out again. And you can watch jumping spiders hunting for prey, and you can watch hoverflies coming up and pollinating flowers. And after a while, you realize you have a little slice of the Discovery Channel right there in your own yard. <laughs> right. And it's, and it's beautiful, and it's colorful, and you know, bees that you think are black, when you take photos of them and look up close, you realize that they're a bit more iridescent and green and blue. Mm. And there's there's just so much beauty happening right there and drama and everything's living out its own little lives. Yeah. What kinds of things then are you are you taking pictures of? Well, I started off with flowers because you know, once you get up close to the colors are so vibrant mm-hmm. and pollen is really interesting. But then I started really getting into insects and even spiders, which are pretty fascinating when you start uh, looking up close at them. Things that I was creeped out by, I mean, spiders are a good example. <laughs> spiders uh-huh. are pretty creepy for a yeah. lot of people. Somehow through the lens, there's this little bit of a distance, but also like this closeness at the same time. Uh-huh. And you just see that spiders are just, they're creating webs, they're hunting down pests in your garden, they're actually working for you all the time and taken completely for granted. And they're fascinating to look at. And so I tell you, I really love taking photos of uh, invertebrates. Wow. What is the coolest spider you've ever photographed? Oh, hmm. I I am 
I'm a little bit partial to jumping spiders uh-huh. now. They're kind of underrated, but when you look up close, uh, I don't know, they're, they have like this giant eyes, this really large eye to oh, face yeah. ratio that's kind of cute. And then and they, they seem to really look at you. I mean, they are looking at you, and some of them get really shy and nervous, and they hide from you, and some of them just turn and, like, face you down, and they'll, you know, some, I've had one jump on my lens before and startled me. Yeah. <laughs> pretty, pretty good. But, some, you know, some of them are fierce little warriors, and I, I don't know, I just respect that, and they're just, they're kind of neat looking in their own right. Yeah. So when you're photographing invertebrates, most of them would be on the ground? Actually, I find a lot of them are hidden in plants. Mm. So I will find, I mean, it kind of depends. I am partial to bees. I have a real, I feel yeah. a really strong connection with bees. They're, I mean, they're big and they're vibrant and they're moving around across flowers, which are these really interesting, colorful surfaces. So they just make really beautiful photos that are really compelling. And a lot of insects do like to hide from you. So it's a little nervous. Uh, They get a little nervous. Uh So they'll be under leaves or they're blending in so well with their environment you don't even realize that they're there. And so uh, I don't find a lot just scurrying across the ground very frequently. Uh Some some different kinds of spiders and stuff, but others you'd need to move leaves and yeah. logs and rocks to get to. Yeah, I guess I guess really the more the question I was asking you was about invertebrates in flight versus invertebrates that are on plants. Do you ever photograph flying bees? Is that something you can get a picture of or Yeah, I do. Flying bees in flight are tricky. Oh, they I'm are sure. tough. And a lot of there are some photographers much more skilled than I am that have uh, different kinds of strobe lights, uh-huh. which are meant to <clears throat> allow photographers to take really clear photos of something that's moving very, very fast. All right. You'd be amazed at how quickly something like a bee is moving and how quickly something like their wings are moving. So that's something that I am working my way up to, but it's really tricky when you're, especially when you're adjusting all of your settings oh, yeah. at once and on you're fly. focusing yeah and it's moving really quickly so that's something i'm i'm working on but i'd like to get i've got a few decent be in flight pictures but i want to get much better at that better at that yeah so what's the coolest picture you've ever taken that's funny you guys asked to me to send some photos some of my favorite photos and i actually like there's there are ones that are really technically accurate that uh-huh. I'm really pleased with. So I'm like, wow, this is really crisp. I've got my focal range is just perfect. But the ones that I'm most drawn to are I've got a couple of bumblebee photos, and one of my favorite ones is this big queen bumblebee who is absolutely covered in pollen. It's all over her face. It's sticking to her body everywhere, and it's just so incredibly charming. I just love it. I love to look at it. And her eyes are so just large, and and it's just so compelling to me. It just shows the personality of the bumblebee is this yeah. big, messy, like a like a puppy or something. And that one is that one's probably that one's pretty special to me. Nice, nice. And was that one of the ones that you sent us for our show notes page? I did. Oh, mm-hmm. nice. So if you go to the show notes page from today's show, you'll be able to see that. 
Cool. So how has this hobby changed the way you see the world? I really, it's changed me in a few different ways. And one of the first ways that I noticed was it made me pause and slow down. <laughs> I've done some traveling yep. and I've seen a lot of you know beautiful places and, and done some really cool things. But something about macro photography makes you stop and cra you can crouch down practically anywhere. Anywhere there's a little patch of plants, you can crouch down and there is all this stuff happening. And it makes you realize how tiny we are in the world and how mm -hmm. these things that are even tinier than us have lives that are just as busy and dramatic as ours. And the other piece was after a while, after you're looking into the face of some of these animals, like bees, and you're looking into their face and you're seeing them moving with so much purpose and grace and tireless effort all the time, it's really hard not to come to love them. And I've seen how the bees' populations have changed. It's a lot harder for me to find bees to take photos of, and there's a lot less variety in the bees that I come across now. Mm -hmm. And so it really helped me connect firsthand wow. to the issue that our pollinators are facing. Yeah. So for those people out there that are curious about this and they'd be interested in actually getting started, what's involved with, uh, you know, actually learning how to do this? So there are kind of uh, two ways to divide up cameras to make it easy uh, for people to understand. So when I talk about a point-and-shoot camera, that's when you take a camera, you literally point it at the object, and you click take the picture. Ah. And like I said, those can be great and beautiful photos can be produced that way. But if you want to get what's called an SLR camera, which is a called single lens reflex camera, that's when you can change the lens out uh -huh. on a bigger body. All right you can decide whether you want to shoot manually or not. Now, I actually took a community college course on digital photography oh. to learn how to make all the different components that you're choosing among, like, to interact with one another. I'm not the type of person who can learn from YouTube videos or a book like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a class was a good choice for me. But there are several components that I'm adjusting all the time when taking a photo. So one is shutter speed. So that just means how quickly is the shutter opening and closing. And mm, if you wanted mm -hmm. to take a photo of, say, a waterfall, and you know that silky effect where the water looks all, like, silky and smooth? Yeah, right. That, that's from having the shutter open for a period of time. Ah. So it captures all the movement that happens. If your shutter's open for three seconds, all the movement that happens in three seconds is captured in mm. that picture. Uh -huh. Now, if you want to have an incredibly fast shutter speed, say to capture a hummingbird's wings, and you want the wings to be still, that's when you might have a shutter speed where it's one one-thousandth of a second. Uh, and then that hummingbird, that shutter is open for such a tiny amount of time, that hummingbird is like frozen with its wings still and crisp, if you're really lucky and talented. <laughs> so there's shutter speed, which you always want to think about. Right. Um, but the longer the shutter is open, the more light comes in. Right. So you can end up, if you just go up to a waterfall and you open your shutter for 10 seconds, you're just going to have this white picture. It's all going to be overexposed yeah. and blown out. 
you have to put a special lens on the front so that light, too much light doesn't get in. So when you adjust shutter speed, you have to think about, is my picture going to be too dark or overblown? Mm -hmm. Now, the second aspect, and this is really important in macro photography, is called aperture, or f-stop is what it's called on the camera. Uh -huh. And what that does is it affects your depth of field. So if you were to take, say, a portrait, you know, you're like, oh, here's my niece, and I want her to be really crisp and clear, but I want the background to be soft and fuzzy. Right. Then I have a shallow depth of field. It basically, the lens is putting all of its focus on her, and the background is really soft. Mm -hmm. And if I want a deeper depth of field, everything would be clear. She's at the beach, so I want the waves, and I want the you know, the grass and all that, and her to all be clear. So in macro photography, I'm taking a picture, say, of a bee, and I want your eye to come straight to the bee's face. Uh -huh. oh, yeah. So I adjust the aperture so that the bee's face is incredibly clear, and maybe the rest of the background is a little bit more soft. Mm. So that, and that also affects light, <laughs> right. how much light comes in. So the more shallow your depth of field, uh, the more light is going to come in and it can overexpose your picture. Mm -hmm. So you have to, oh, so I have to, you know, adjust my shutter speed to make sure that my picture isn't too dark or overexposed. And then the third component is what's called ISO. And so this is what used to be film speed. And what that does is it really impacts that light component. So if it's really dark out and I want a fast shutter speed and a large depth of field, the uh -huh. only way I can keep that picture from being too dark is to change the ISO. But once your ISO gets really high, pictures can become grainy mm, and right. of noise. Yes. And they become that kind of, you know, you'll take, you remember pictures and you're like, oh, it's a little dark, but everything seems really grainy and gritty. Yep. yep. That's because of the ISO. So with all these things, you're adjusting all the time, and they all impact each other, and they all impact your photo. Mm -hmm. So all these things impact your photo, and, and especially the light and how light and dark your photo is. And then, of course, you are focusing manually as well. Oh, right. Right, so, so that your subject's in focus. So if you have a situation where you're taking pictures of animals that are coming in and out of shadows mm -hmm. or clouds are passing and that your light is fluctuating all the time and it's moving around really fast, it's, really, it's a really fun challenge. And you can pick on a camera the level of challenge you want to have. Maybe you make everything automatic except for the lens focus. And, oh. you know, just to start off there. Ah. Um, yeah. Or you can say, oh, I want the aperture to be set here so that I have a really shallow depth of field, and that's automatically set, but I can adjust other things. Uh -huh. And so cameras, cameras can really let you pick what you'd like to do. Right. I tend to like stuff to be a little bit different setting than my camera wants. Mm -hmm. My camera wants stuff to be brighter than I do. I like a lot of contrast in my yeah. pictures. Wow, cool. So I, had, I absolutely had no idea. You know, I've never been a photographer. I've not done any of this kind of work. You know, uh, when smartphones came along, I actually started taking pictures. But before that, it was a. Uh, you remember those uh, cameras that you could buy, and you, you know, it was the whole thing was disposable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, you know, mm -hmm. I did those for a while, but then I got tired of you know throwing them away. So, 
you know, until yeah. a smartphone came along, I, I, you know, I really wasn't taking pictures. And then after that, I, you know, most of the time I'm just pointing and clicking. So this has been a lot of great data. Well, and, and it's so digital photography has made stuff so accessible to people yeah. because you can take a photo and even if say I can't get as close to a subject as I want to get, I just crop it later on my computer. Oh, right. Uh-huh. can change the entire composition of the photo. So composition is really, really important. Mm -hmm. And if you just crop things a bunch of different ways, you could find it completely changes the feel of the photo. And being yeah. able to do that on your computer when you get back in the house, it makes it so easy yeah. and variable for people. Big time. So I'm going to shift on you. And I, in talking about macro photography i'd like for you to talk about a time you failed how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it sure yes oh, i've had plenty of failures uh -huh. for sure <laughs> and the worst is when you find something really really interesting and i have gotten so excited about it that i didn't check my settings and um. the picture was overblown uh, meaning it's all white, it's yeah. all way too bright, yeah. or just the moment's lost and you don't get to have it back again. Right. And that's always really frustrating. And there was actually, when I was learning how to do slower shutter speed stuff, I, I also enjoy landscape photography too, but I had gone out in the pouring rain because it was really dark and I wanted to take these slow shutter speed pictures of waterfalls. And I'm out in this, this huge rainstorm and my boyfriend's like holding this umbrella over me, like trying to take these pictures. <laughs> Good boyfriend. And, <laughs> yeah, it was early in our relationship. <laughs> and he, um, he's out there freezing. I'm out there freezing. And I didn't understand that you had to have a special lens to take reduced shutter speed pictures. And so I just couldn't figure out what was happening. So this dark and stormy day allowed me to go out there, and the pictures were all well, they were all terrible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was, uh, it was a it was a huge loss, uh, a huge waste of time. Uh -huh. And that was and that the best part of the fun as yeah. well. And some of it is you have to just let go of the product and just enjoy the process. Yeah. And where it's it's kind of ironic because you're taking a photo and you're kind of holding this moment in time. Yeah. But at the same time, you're also trying to live in the present even though you're capturing something for the future that's a picture of the past so right <laughs> um, but that's what i like <laughs> that's what i like about shooting manually is all the settings and everything take concentration right. and it's difficult and you're thinking about composition and you're thinking about what you want and what you want to feel and what others who look at your stuff wants to feel yeah and and what i found too is i just had thousands and thousands of pictures on my computer and what was really cool about this uh, the Pollinator Parkways project was it allowed me to actually use the photos oh, yes. for educational purposes yep. and to share. I really like kind of a Steve Irwin type approach, you know, get really excited about how beautiful and amazing nature is. Mm -hmm. And being able to use photos in that way has made me, has reinvigorated my love of macro photography. Because yeah. I think a lot of pictures is sharing with others. You take pictures for yourself too, but sharing with others and um, seeing them get excited or attached to something is, is right. uh, pretty special. Yeah. So what do you consider your biggest success? I think my biggest success is being able to make real use of, of, of the photography that I do. And my photography is, I am definitely a hobbyist 
and I always look at other other really great photographers who are able to take pictures at the next level, and uh-huh. that always uh, always there to inspire me. But I also like that my stuff isn't perfect, and I think it makes it makes the idea that anybody can do this a lot more accessible yeah. and realistic because it is something anybody could do. It's just like any other thing; you just take the time and do some practice, and if you love it, you just keep doing it. Keep doing it, yeah. So I, I, I think it's being able to actually use the photos for good, and I've, I've given them to others in presentations and to help further conservation causes is yeah. something I, I'm really happy with. So you've mentioned pollinator parkways, and I, I just want to touch on that briefly. You, We actually had you on the show on October 8th, 2016, uh, and the show notes page for that is urbanfarm.org backslash pollinator parkways. Tell us, because this is, in my opinion, after talking to you, this is one of your bigger successes is this pollinator parkways project. So if you're, if, for the listeners out there, if you're interested in hearing the whole story, the October 8th podcast is where you can hear the whole story. But tell us, you know, give us a two minute version of what it is. Sure. So as I said before, that. Taking photos of pollinators has really connected me much more deeply with them. And so Pollinator Parkways is a project I started in my neighborhood that encourages people and teaches people how to turn their parking strip, the grass strip that's in between the sidewalk and the road, Uh into actual pollinator habitat. And I use the photos to show the huge variety of pollinators we have. We actually have 4,000 bees that are native to the U.S. alone. Wow. And it's way beyond just a honeybee and a bumblebee. There are mm-hmm. there's thousands of species. And so being able to take photos of that and share that with people has gotten people really excited about the project. I post a lot on the Pollinators Parkways Facebook page and just try to continually get out like there's adventures to be had in your own garden. And when you create a little pollinator habitat, there are way more adventures <laughs> that are happening than, yeah. than in, a, in a lawn. And in your vegetable garden as well, there are tons of amazing insects that are helping you combat garden pests that go after your crops. And when people use pesticides, they're actually much more likely to kill predators, and those predators take populations take a long time to come back yeah. um, than they are to kill the pests, which are you know, have lots and lots of babies and adapt very quickly to yeah. chemicals. So a lot of it, too, is talking about a chemical-free mm-hmm. way of gardening because the chemicals really aren't all that necessary. Yeah. Amen to that. Amen to that. <laughs> so what is the web address for Pollinator Parkways? It is pollinatorparkways.org. Perfect. Perfect, perfect, perfect. So what drives you? What drives me is a desire to be connected. And I think that, you know, we're, we're a very digitally connected world right now. But the connection to nature is, mm. I think, so valuable. I think it's, it's the thing that keeps me from being depressed when it's cloudy here for six months of the year in Portland, yeah. <laughs> Oregon. And, and also just reminds you about what's real. And that, through photography and through actually the Pollinator Parkways project as well, it's that it's that desire to be connected to the things that we're supposed to be connected to. <laughs> yeah, 
I love that. I love that. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? My advice is, is to go out into your garden. This time of year, it's a little less exciting, but especially in spring, and just go sit and watch very carefully for tiny little bugs and tiny little creatures, and you will be really <laughs> amazed at what's happening and yeah. how, many, how many things are living in your tiny little garden. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of joy and fascination that comes from it. So pull out your iPhone or whatever kind of phone you have or whatever kind of camera you have and just try taking some pictures yeah. and look at it up close later. Beautiful. You know, I had an interesting epiphany the other day. I walked out into the backyard, and I've lived here at the Urban Farm for 27 years. And I walked out on the back patio, and I just started looking around at all of the different birds. And I think the reason that this happened for me in this particular moment is because there were like 15 different kinds of birds in the trees and on the grass and in the gardens. And it was almost an overload in that moment of birds. So it was almost like nature was saying, whoa, hold on here, stop, take a look at this. And it was amazing to see that, you know, just the, the varieties of birds that were in my eyesight at that particular moment. So I can, you know, I, I, I'm, I can kind of sense what it might be like to go hang out in the, you know, in our space and pay attention to those things. Yeah. And to see something like that, I don't. It fills me with like a sense of almost like privilege or uh, honor to mm-hmm. be just a part of that yeah. and to see something that amazing. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today, Sherry. It has been a treat getting to chat with you. Oh well, I've had fun too. So, how can our listeners get a hold of you? So through, I have a really active Facebook page, Pollinator Parkway's Facebook page, and messaging me, I'm really responsive there. Or you can email me at pollinatorparkways at gmail.com. Perfect. Perfect. Hey, is there anywhere we can see your photography? Actually, yes. If you Google 500px Pollinator Parkways, you can actually see photos I've taken of little creatures in my yard as well as photos of the recent ice storm that we've had. Oh, right. <laughs> and it's all macro photography. Oh, nice. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org backslash macro. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Greg Peterson here, and I want to thank you for listening to the Urban Farm Podcast. We wouldn't be able to keep doing these great shows without you. So as a token of my appreciation, I'd like to offer you access to a list of our top 10 episodes I personally find most inspiring. If you enjoy the Urban Farm Podcast but don't have time to listen to everyone, then you will love this list. Although all our guests have great information to offer, if you are short on time, these 10 are must-listens. To get access to the top 10 most inspiring podcast episodes, text FARMER to 44222. That's FARMER to 44222. And enjoy listening. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. 
You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.